What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. I am, as always, very excited to be back. You've got me, you've got Laurel, you got baby Arthur sleeping, wrapped up, um, Laurel holding him. You may hear some of his very loud snoring. I don't know if that'll come up, but he is snoring very loudly. Either that or his incredibly astute political commentary. He's turned out to be a real whiz in that area. Yeah, yes. He is very versed in the philosophy of Lou. Lou. <laughs> and he's really good at the philosophy of Ga. And <laughs> Yeah, he's yeah. really, really, really versed in those things. We're kidding as always, but... Um, very excited to be back. We wanted to do this episode last week. However, Laurel and I got our first dose of COVID vaccine, and which is amazing and awesome. And we are very excited to be vaccinated, or at least partially vaccinated, I should say. However, we were knocked out. We were running high fevers and chills, and it just wasn't a good place for us to actually do the podcast so we made an, an executive decision and decided to punt the podcast to today, which is Easter Sunday, rebirth, everything, happy Easter, happy whatever spring festival you celebrate, and we are going to be going deep into the ancient world, and we are going to discuss the 2004? Yep. 2004 movie Troy. Yeah, super exciting to talk about Troy. This was my first time seeing this movie, and it's something that I had sort of been prepared to absolutely hate, and then was kind of surprised by how much I enjoyed it, and how much I thought we could bring to the Midnight Myth from it. So I want to thank Derek for kind of pushing me to watch it finally, uh, and it's really exciting to get into the kind of archaic Greek past and talk about the Trojan War, talk about the Iliad, all of these things that form such a basis of the things that we're so interested in, especially with history and mythology. So yeah, let's rock it. Yeah, I am very excited. I Obviously, I saw Troy in the theater. I am a big fan of this movie, Flaws and All, which we will get into. And there's so much to talk about today. It's Easter Sunday. We're going to ancient Greece. But before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, we would love to hear from you. We are on social media over on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Midnight Myth Podcast. And you can always drop us a line in any of those places. We would love to hear how you're doing, what episodes you want to hear, what you think of the podcast. Uh, you can also head over to our website, midnightmyth.com, where you can find extra content and blogs. That's also where you'll find a link to our Patreon and our merch store if you have some extra money and you want to throw some of it our way. If you don't have extra cash laying around but you want to support the podcast, the very best way you can do it is to leave us a rating and a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. So if you like what you hear over on The Midnight Myth and you want to help us reach more people, consider leaving us five stars and dropping a few words about why you love us. Uh, and it also helps, uh, helps our self-esteem very much. And fellow travelers on the path of the beam, Steve and I are working on our next Wheel of Ka episode. We are reading the Stephen King book, Insomnia. We are about a third of the way through it. We're thinking we're going to read the whole book 
and do one episode, maybe two episodes, depending how, you know, how long that goes. So if you are on the path of the beam, pick up a copy of Insomnia, start reading with us. We're thinking probably end of April, early May, we should be ready to go with an episode, which is exciting. Yeah, I'm super excited for that one. All right, shall we do our briefest of brief recaps? Take it away, Derek. Troy starts with the warlord Agamemnon, the king of Mycenae, um, conquering all of Greece and unifying it under his rule to the chagrin of the greatest warrior, Achilles. Then the Trojans decide to make peace with Sparta, in which the young prince of Troy, Paris, seduces the queen of Sparta, Helen, and takes her back to Troy with her. Sparta is run by the king Menelaus, who is the younger brother of Agamemnon, and they form an alliance to bring all of the warriors of Greece to Troy in order to get Helen back. Now, Achilles, the greatest warrior in Greece and in the world, does not want to follow Agamemnon because he feels he is an arrogant and uh, not a nice dude, which is actually very accurate. Odysseus ends up convincing Achilles to go, noting that this will be the greatest war ever fought, and it will be talked about for centuries. Achilles goes and asks his mom, who says in the water, if he stays in Greece, he will live a long life and a happy life with a big family, and they will love him, but he will be forgotten. However, if he goes and fights in Troy, he will be remembered for forever. However, he will die in Troy and not come home. Achilles and his men decide to set sail for Troy with the remaining Greeks, and they single-handedly take the beach of Troy, storming a palace, or pardon me, a temple of Apollo, and kidnapping the king's younger cousin, Perseus, and takes her as a slave. Agamemnon, in order to show his sort of ultimate kingliness and wants to beat Achilles into submission, ends up taking Perseus from Achilles, and Achilles decides he is not going to help them fight. The army, the Greek army that is, is lost without Achilles and cannot win a single battle. When the Trojans decide they're going to press their advantage and Hector leads an attack against the Greeks on their beach encampment, the young Patroclus, Achilles' cousin in the movie, dons Achilles' armor and rushes out onto the battlefield. And Patroclus and Hector find themselves locked in a duel in which Hector, thinking he's fighting Achilles, kills Patroclus. This then prompts the battle to end as Hector realizes it wasn't Achilles he was fighting, and the Trojans go back to their city. Achilles, incensed, challenges Hector to a duel in which he kills Hector and takes his body back to the Greek encampment, a sign of huge disrespect as well as barring Hector's ability to have a proper funeral, which means he will not be able to make it to the afterlife. The king of Troy, Priam, comes to Achilles and begs Achilles to let him have Hector's body, let him have a funeral. And Achilles, realizing that he was wrong, says to Priam that Hector was the greatest person he had ever fought and decides to give the body back to Priam so they can have a funeral and that the Greeks will hold a peace, a truce, for 12 days to honor Hector's memory. This is also when Priam sees Perseus, And Achilles says that she can go back to Troy if she so chooses. At this point, Achilles and Perseus have a romantic relationship. Long story short, Agamemnon is ticked off that he has to honor this truce agreement. And then Odysseus thinks of a plan to construct a gigantic wooden horse and that a few soldiers will hide in the horse. And when the Trojans take the horse into their city... They will come out at the middle of the night and open up the gates so that the Greeks can finally preach, breach the walls, pardon me, of Troy and sack the city. This plan goes over incredibly well. Achilles decides that he wants to go into the horse, but not to sack Troy, but to save Perseus' life. The city gets burned to the ground and Achilles finds Perseus and Paris slips and falls and hits an arrow into Achilles' heel And then Achilles ends up dying and all of Troy burns right at the very end. Hector gives the sword of Troy to Aeneas and says, carry this and lead our people onward. And that's the movie. Yeah. Real setup for a sequel there. Uh, Wolfgang Peterson's the Aeneid. Anyone? 
Uh, yes, please. Maybe 20 years later. <laughs> yeah, give me all of that. Yeah. All right, so a lot happens. It's a very long movie, a ton of plot. The first question I have for you, as always, now this is your first time seeing Troy. I saw it in the theaters, and I own it on DVD, so I've seen it several times. What do you think of the movie? Does it hold up? Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, was prepared for kind of a disaster, and while I think this movie has tons of problems... I did find it very entertaining and I was really quite impressed by the production value. I mean, it's got an incredible cast. You've got, you know, Brad Pitt, who's in his prime and Rose Byrne, who's this upstart. And then you've got heavyweights like Peter O'Toole and Brendan Gleeson and Julie Christie, just these incredible, you've got Lawrence of Arabia himself cast as preem here. So they knew what they were doing. They knew they were following in the footsteps of these big, epics, these big ancient epics that were popular in the 1960s that kind of had a resurgence in Gladiator, and they have this cast of thousands, an incredibly practical uh, you know, process where there's not a whole lot of computer-generated animation. There's a lot of big set pieces and on-location shooting that makes it feel very real, very raw, very epic, and very beautiful. So in general... I was pretty impressed with the movie. I think it has, you know, some issues with characterization on a lot of fronts. I think it has, uh, you know, some some issues with divergence from the source material that is a little uncomfortable. But it's also, you know, telling us something. It's also telling a story that wants to be different from the source material. So I definitely think this movie is valuable and is better than a lot of people would make it out to seem. Uh, you just can't really look at it as a straightforward. At- straightforward adaptation of the Iliad. If you're looking at it like that, you're going to be mad and disappointed. Yeah. People wanted to see the Iliad in form and that is not this movie. So a lot of people were very disappointed. I'll be honest. When I first saw it, I was like, this is nothing like the Iliad. Where are the gods? This is so weird. The Greeks are kind of the bad guys and the Trojans are the good guys. It's like, wait, no, 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 no. This is a story about Greeks actually conquering Troy because the Trojans are supposed to be the enemies of the Greeks. They are kind of the bad guys of the Iliad. And I was very disappointed when I first saw the movie. It took me time to kind of see its its value. It's crazy how hated this movie is. It seems strange that this movie is so despised. And yes, I think the accents are all over the place. Oh, yeah, I counted like a dozen different accents. And Brad Pitt is doing a dozen different accents, scene by scene. It doesn't have the greatest acting of Brad Pitt. And Brad Pitt is a marvelous actor. I have tons of respect for Brad Pitt. The fighting is incredibly stylized and martial artized. Achilles is just flying through the air like a superhero. And I don't know if that really makes sense with the realistic set design, the realistic storyline, the ideas that's saying, what if this really happened? What would it actually look like? But then you have this superhuman Achilles who's flying around with swords and spears like a superhero. Yeah, there's a bit of a disconnect there. Uh, There's a bit of a disconnect between the realism of the story and the way it historicalizes a myth versus the mythological way that Achilles approaches his combat that doesn't really connect to me. You know, whereas you have a movie like Gladiator you mentioned, or I'll also call Braveheart, where the violence, the fighting in it feels like real people actually doing the fighting. And I'm not saying that's how Romans fought or the Scottish fought in particular with Braveheart. There's nothing historical about it whatsoever. That's not how medieval combat worked. But the violence matches the tone of the movie, where in this one, it's like, wait a minute, is Achilles a superhuman? Is he actually part God? Or is this like, is this realistic uh, historical drama? And that kind of disconnects for me. Yeah. And to have removed the gods, uh, you know, literally from the storyline there just heightens that disconnect. And I do think it's an interesting choice to remove the gods because if you go back and you watch a movie like Clash of the Titans and you see, you know, actors in togas in a cloudy, you know, pillory, you know, area, it's cheesy. It would have been really cheesy in this film and it really would not have lined up. It would have been a much 
more, uh, you know, painful disconnect. It would have been very, very disharmonious for us to see that in this kind of tone. Um, but it is an interesting choice to say, okay, the gods are major actors in the source material of this, and we're, instead of having the gods, you know, using humans as their playthings, we're going to have human choice really matter, we're going to have individual will really matter, and we're going to be left with a little bit of a question about, are the gods real? Are they on anyone's side? Is there something supernatural about Achilles' power? Is his heel, you know, his magical, uh, you know, weakness, or did he just get hit at the right place at the right time? Uh, so I think it does an ask and answer some interesting questions while also being, you know, just a little messy about how it handles those. And of course, it's written by a young guy named David Benioff, uh, who, as you know, would later go on to create and then destroy Game of Thrones on HBO. So that was an interesting thing to learn. A couple other interesting things I learned about the production is that Wolfgang Peterson, who we've talked about before in his movie The Never-Ending Story, this German director who has always been very reliable, made movies like The Perfect Storm and Poseidon. Uh, you know, he makes these big, uh, big-budget studio films. He's not necessarily going to be your, like, you know, auteur necessarily, but he's going to make you a successful movie. He wasn't originally going to direct this. It was almost directed by a guy named Christopher Nolan. Uh, and the studio ended up giving it to Peterson. But at the time, Peterson was interested in making a movie called Batman versus Superman. So all kinds of crazy stuff going on behind the scenes at the studio uh, during that time. And a very interesting alternate universe where we could have gotten Christopher Nolan's Troy and Wolfgang Peterson's Batman versus Superman. That really just entertains me. Yeah. Awesome stuff there. I would not want to see Christopher Nolan's Troy scored by Hans Zimmer with a yeah. lot of wah. Yeah. It would have been very, very different. <laughs> it would have been a very different movie, but in general, I don't think this movie should be as hated as it is. It is a successful movie and it is at its heart, a movie deconstructing the virtue of war. And that is its overarching theme War is being fought for a variety of different reasons, and we have a variety of different people fighting, and each character is in many ways a deconstruction on the, the idea that war is what makes a man a great man, and very much that theme gets hit home. You have uh, Briseis, who is a priestess who then is taken as a slave, who <clears throat> is challenging Achilles and his warlike ways. And when she realizes that Achilles was just not just a simple brute, she says, I could have forgiven you if you were just a brute. We have uh, Priam, who says that wars are fought for conquest, wars are fought for glory, wars are fought for riches. Perhaps love is the best reason of all to fight for a war. You have Hector, who is the reluctant warrior, who's skilled at war and sees it as his duty, but has no joy in it. He doesn't want to fight it. He wants to live. He wants to live in peace. In fact, the movie starts with Menelaus, Hector, and Paris having a peace treaty, trying to avoid future wars. And then conversely, you have Agamemnon, who fights for his own power and for his own glory, who wants to be the king of the Aegean and wants to wipe out the Trojans just simply so he can say it's his. And in each of these characters and the conflicts that they have within the movies, within the movie, pardon me, they all end up coming to one conclusion. Achilles doesn't want to fight anymore. And this is the story of Achilles, the ruthless killer, becoming someone who wants peace. Yes, he goes into the, the Trojan horse. Yes, he participates in the sack of Troy, but he is doing it to try to save Perseus. He is not doing it to kill anyone. He has finally learned that war is not worth it, that he does not want to be just a mindless killer. Yeah, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. I think that's an excellent uh, you know, reading of the overarching themes. And every time you look back to the Trojan War, anytime you adapt the Iliad, you are engaging directly with those questions of what is war good for? Because this is like the most famous war. 
This is the, you know, biggest mythological, potentially historical event that we, you know, count so many, uh, you know, points in mythology against and in history against. Where does this fall in relationship to the Trojan War, chronologically or thematically? So I think, yeah, every time you engage with it, you have to engage with those questions. And one of the things that you are pointing out here about these differing men, these differing characters and how they relate to war, I think, uh, you know, is a major strength of the movie and how it, it offers us profiles in masculinity because there are not a lot of women in Troy, right? And there's not a lot of women in the Iliad. We have Helen, the face that launched a thousand ships, who is not particularly characterized in the Iliad and is also not particularly characterized in Troy. Uh, you know, she's kind of just an engine for the men and their war. We have Briseis, who has a little bit more characterization. She has a little bit of agency, but not a ton. She's mostly a bargaining chip. But then we have some very, very broad spectrums of what it looks like to be a man and to be a man in war and to be a man in ancient war and what it's like to be a hero. So like you said, we have Hector, the reluctant warrior, who is absolutely the ideal, right? He is physically and uh, you know um, emotionally the kind of ideal man, but he doesn't want to fight. He fights for his country. He fights for his people. He fights for those he loves. And we spend more time with him as a family man, you know, spending time with his wife and baby than we do with him on the battlefield. Then you have Paris, who is rash and immature, but at the end of the day, he's portrayed as a lover, not as an abductor in this, but as a lover in a consensual adult relationship who wants to fight for the woman that he loves. And then you have Priam, played by Peter O'Toole, who has that beautiful quote about fighting for love that you said, and who is the first, even though he is a mighty king of a huge civilization, to show incredible vulnerability. He goes into his enemy's camp and begs for mercy, begs for the body of his son, who he loves more than anything in the world, and does this in front of another powerful man, and what's interesting about those profiles is that those three are the Trojans. The Greeks, Achilles, Menelaus, and Agamemnon are power-hungry, are rage, are vengeful, uh, and they are not engaging with these more sensitive, more vulnerable, softer sides of masculinity that we see in the Trojans. It's a really unexpected take that this movie has, but I think it shows us that balance does need to be created. And that's why Achilles, you know, even though he is not particularly likable in this movie, does become our hero is because he learns from the Trojans. He learns from Hector, the greatest, you know, fighter he ever fought. He learns from Paris, the engine of this war. And he learns from Priam, who comes to him with vulnerability, how to be a better man. And that's not by fighting. That's by, you know, taking your vengeful side and marrying it to this warmer, softer side. Yeah, <clears throat> I love that. And I love when Achilles goes to Hector's body and says, you know, I'll see you on the other side of the river, brother, admitting that he and Hector are more in common than they are, than they have separate. The idea that they are bonded through war and that they are bonded through this process and that learning to respect your enemy learning to respect another human being, to let them, even if you've killed them, to let them have their funeral, to let them have their proper burial, to let the city mourn their fallen prince is a sign of honor and respect that transcends the conflict. Because Achilles, at this in, the entire time, sees this conflict for what it is. One man's vainglorious attempt to power. And he recognizes that all this is, is Agamemnon wanting to conquer to conquer. And he doesn't agree with the way Agamemnon wields war for fun, wields war without honor and respect. And then when he himself, Achilles, disrespects Hector, he disrespects the body of Hector, he ends up disrespecting the very code that he is telling, trying to teach Briseis, that there is a code to this that there is a way in which that you can conduct yourself as a warrior. Ares is the god of war, and that war is a part of the human experience. 
and he learns how to wage it in a way with respect to the enemies, and that's what makes him the hero. Yeah. So for me, watching Troy today can feel kind of like a reminder that even when you are the victor, you get to write the histories. You're the Greeks. You get to cast yourself as the hero and you feel like the hero because you have the biggest army or you have the gods on the so- on your side or you won. You might actually be the villain of the piece. I mean, is this faithful to the Iliad? No. But is there value in casting a sympathetic light on the you know, somewhat more nuanced, balanced masculinity of the Trojans? I think yes. I think Troy is telling us that the kind of macho, warlike nature of man, uh, that classical definition of heroism, is, you know, inferior to the kind of quieter, more vulnerable nature that man can access, and that there is something to strive for in a balance between the two. It really gets to the questions of why do we keep telling the Iliad? Why do we keep talking about the Trojan War? Why do we revisit characters like Achilles, Heracles, and Perseus in the forms of Captain America and Thor and Iron Man and in so many other places? We keep telling those stories because we're drawn to heroes, but we do have to examine the faults that come with the heroic ideal. I totally agree. So we think this movie holds up. Yes. We've answered that question. Surprisingly well. I'd like to turn in terms of analysis. I'm going to ask a few big questions. Question one, what was the Iliad? Question two, who was Homer? And question three, what can we learn from that source material which this movie is based on? And I think those will help ground our understanding of the movie Troy, if you'll permit me. Yeah, please. We've talked about mythopoetic societies as considered pre-logical, not that people couldn't think and people didn't have reasoning skills. Rather, before there were schools and repositories of knowledge, how do you pass truths, things that you have learned from one generation to another? This is compounded with the problem of literacy. If people don't know how to read and write, how do you preserve knowledge? What creates knowledge? And then how do you transmit it? Poetry is a fantastic solution to this problem, and it's one that you're going to find in ancient peoples all over the world, because a poem can be memorized. A poem can be constructed with mnemonic devices that make it easier to remember, as well as there can be a basic lyrical structure that if you end up forgetting a part of it, you can just kind of plug in different things. So if you're reciting a poem and you forget a verse, but you understand the story structure, you understand the language that it's being told in, and you understand the meter, you can then kind of just fill in the gaps with things that will be true to the spirit of the story. So if you have a pre-literate or mostly illiterate society, one without formalized schools or academies in which people can go and learn, You have the problem of how do you transmit what you know, enter the mythopoetic knowledge structure. It is an epistemological structure that says what we know will be preserved in myth and in poems. Now, the Iliad is a very interesting case. One, because of its insane popularity, and two, because it was actually written down. Now, the the story of the Trojan War If this happened, and most historians do believe it did, there is a site that they believe was Troy, and it was, it does show signs that it was completely and totally destroyed. So they believe there was a Trojan War, and it did end with the city of Troy being burned to the ground. However, we don't really know for certain, because the only accounts that we have come from the Greeks. The Mycenaean Age, this is the Bronze Age of the ancient world. So we're looking at like 1200 BCE, before the Common Era, when the city Mycenae was the most powerful in the place that would become Greece. Here is the thing. They were not Greeks. They did not speak Greek. The Greek language did not exist at that time. And somewhere around 1200 BCE, the Bronze Age collapsed. No one really knows what happened, but you see uh, the Hittite Empire, you see the Mycenaean Greeks, you see the Babylonians. Everywhere there was a Dark Age. The only society that came across that didn't completely collapse was Egypt. 
Egypt sustained during this dark age, and no one really knows what happened or why, but all of these societies ended up failing and collapsing on their face, and the ancient world went into a dark age. In particular, the entire Mycenaean Greek civilization, which is technically pre-Greek, vanished. Nobody knows what happened to them. Nobody knows why. Greek history as we know it starts in what's called the Archaic Period. This is the time where there's the formation of the polis. There is the adoption of the Phoenician alphabet by the Greeks, which would then become the Greek alphabet. So the Greeks are starting to learn how to write things down. It's theorized that they learned how to write things down and use the Phoenician alphabet because the Phoenicians were a seafaring people. They went on to form a little-known civilization called Carthage. You may have heard of that from history. But they were really good seafaring merchants. So if you're going to trade with the Phoenicians, you need to understand how to write things down. Otherwise, they have an advantage in the trade organization they can say, oh, no, no, look at this paper here. We didn't agree to give you 25 sheep. We agreed to give you five sheep. That's what we have here. Five sheep. It says five sheep, guys, right? Right? Can you read that? Oh, yeah. That's the contract you signed. It was for five sheep. So the Greeks ended up adopting the Phoenician alphabet and then customizing it to their own and then developed out of trade a literary tradition that I would argue is unparalleled in the ancient world until the Romans. Now, this is the Archaic Age. This is not the age where Athens and Sparta are going to war with each other in the Persian Wars. That would be considered the Classical Age. But a formation of a Greek identity, city-states are starting to develop. There are two main dialects of Greek being spoken now, one in the Peloponnese, where the Spartans are from, and one where the Athenians are, where the Athenians are from. But largely speaking, the same language with two regionally different dialects, and a Greek culture is emerging. And in comes Homer. And what does Homer do? One, we know next to nothing about Homer. Some even argue that there was no Homer. Yeah, he may not have existed, or he may have been several men. I tend to not agree with that interpretation. Right. I tend to think that there was a Homer. And what does Homer do? He takes the most popular story being told, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and he writes them down. And we, we modern people are fortunate enough that those writings still exist intact. We can actually go and read ancient Greek Homer, and then we can translate it into modern languages. So why does he write this down? What is the Iliad in particular? Because that is the subject matter at hand all about. And what was the impact that it had leading up to the movie Troy? The Iliad is only one small piece of a 10-year war. It takes place with the Agamemnon taking Perseus, Achilles deciding not to fight, the death of Patrocles at the hands of Hector, and Achilles then disrespecting the body of Hector, and Priam comes and begs for the body, and Achilles gives the body back to Priam. That's the entire Iliad. A lot of things happen. There's the, the duel between Paris and Menelaus. The gods are actively engaged and involved in the story. Um, they are main players. So when Menelaus defeats uh, Paris... It is Venus, or Aphrodite, pardon me, who ends up saving Paris and taking him out of the duel, not being like kind of cowardly shucked away the way it's done in the movie. And Menelaus doesn't die in it. Menelaus gets Helen back, and they live a long life, but that's not a part of the Iliad. So why does Homer, when writing the Iliad, why does he write just this one piece? It seems like in the scope of a 10-year epic war, this is kind of not the most interesting piece. Yeah, this is, you're saying there's no Trojan horse, there's no Achilles heel in the Iliad. Correct. Cool. Yeah. Have, yeah. You, not, have you not read the Iliad? No, I have, but it was like in middle school. And so you think of it as being the story of the Trojan War, but it really is just this episode. It's just And I want to clarify that for, for it listeners. It is just from uh, the Agamemnon taking Perseus, Achilles sitting out, the death of Patrocles, the death of Hector, the giving of Hector's body yeah. back to Priam, and the Got Iliad it. ends. Why just that? And it's a really amazing question. 
because you one, it assumes the, the, the reader of the poem knows the whole story. It doesn't waste any time explaining how the Trojan War started. It doesn't waste time explaining the end of the Trojan War. It just tells this, so it assumes the reader knows the entire story. That tells us that this whole story was incredibly well-known. Otherwise, Homer would have written down the whole thing from start to finish. So the focus of the Iliad just on that piece tells us how prolific the story of the Trojan War was to the archaic Greeks. Two, it is creating the foundation of Greek masculinity and that your arrogance and your hubris can end up disrespecting your enemies. And it is better to respect your enemies in honor in combat than it is to disrespect them. Three, the death and funeral rites were taken very seriously by the archaic Greeks. It is an incredibly important thing to be buried properly with a proper funeral. That That is the only way in which your body and your spirit can make it intact to the underworld. If you are not given the duty of a proper funeral and burial, you will not make it to the underworld successfully. You are doomed to wander the earth um, for forever. So it is establishing that the funeral rites must be respected among Greeks over everything and anything else. That's, you know, a question that recurs in a lot of Greek drama. I'm thinking a lot about Antigone, uh, that is very much engaged with this question of burial and honor and how we preserve our dead, even when great wrongs have been committed between family members, loved ones, or enemies. Absolutely. So Achilles making a sin against the gods by not allowing Hector a proper burial is the point. The fact that he decides to get let Hector have the proper funeral, let him have the, the actual funeral games that they need to be played, let his body get washed and cleaned and then burned, is the point. It is establishing and codifying the respect for funeral rites in an ancient Greek sense. And then lastly, it is the establishment. All of this is the establishment of the perfect Greek warrior in Achilles. This is a template that would reverberate through the ancient world. When Alexander the Great crossed the Aegean Sea to the spot of Troy, there was an altar to Achilles to which he made sacrifices. He went and sacrificed to Achilles as Achilles was a god himself, even though he were mortal. Alexander the Great, the greatest Greek king warrior, paid homage to Achilles before he went on his conquest in the East. He made himself respect Achilles. Alexander the Great, who considered himself a son of Zeus. Yeah, he didn't have to respect anyone. <laughs> respected Achilles. Yeah. Furthermore, it is creating a Greek literary tradition, a tradition which would go on to shape and form Western culture itself. By creating Achilles as the Greek, e.g. Western hero, the hero by which all other heroes will be compared to, it demarcates the boundaries between a culture on the West and a foreign orientalized culture on the East. And this culture would then go and move and shape and change the world as we know it still to date by making the Iliad a written down version of what it means to be a Greek hero. We got a literary tradition that would then go on to do things like help write constitutional polices, go on to shape Western thought by the formation of philosophy by creating, taking these stories and creating them into theater, theater in which people have to memorize lines. That's a lot easier to do if people can read. So Homer is so foundational. I would argue it is the most significant Western civilization text until the emergence of the Christian Bible. That is fascinating. He's, he's, significant to, uh, you know, history and to creating a literary tradition, tradition, but he's also just foundational to worldwide literacy. You know, it's not a perfect metaphor, but as you're saying this, I'm thinking about like the Mona Lisa, which is not 
by any means da Vinci's greatest or most interesting work. In fact, it's very small, much like the Iliad, maybe not Homer's most interesting work and a very small fraction of a much bigger story. When you actually see it, you're like, that's it? But it is so important as a piece of the oeuvre of a great artist and also, you know, for creating an artistic tradition in its path. I totally, totally agree with that. And it's worth noting that other people were starting to write down poetry too. Sure, yeah. It just so happens the Iliad was the most famous of them. The Iliad was the one that captured the imaginations of Western civilization. So we've established the historical significance of the Iliad. My question that arises from that is, why make Troy in 2004? Why does Wolfgang Peterson, why does the studio want the story of the Trojan War told in this format in that time? Yeah, the Trojan War was a 10-year affair. And in many ways, from a contemporary perspective, fought on very silly grounds. One man steals the wife of another man and nations go to war. And that reasoning does not really hold up in a modern context. In the ancient world where honor was the most important thing, that makes a ton of sense. In the modern world, you're like, you went to war for that? That doesn't make any sense. 2004 was a period of time in which America was engaged and still currently is engaged in long, bloody conflicts of conquest in the Middle East. And arguably on some pretty shoddy pretenses. In particular, the invasion of Iraq done to stop Saddam Hussein from stockpiling weapons of mass destruction that we all now know didn't exist. It was a pretext of war for the sake of war done on a shoddy reason and it has going to and will reverberate with terrible consequences consequences that we are still grappling with right now and we don't know where they'll go we cannot even begin to see the full picture of the consequences of that war and making troy and making troy a deconstruction of the warrior archetype and a deconstruction on the reason for war maps into the Bush's regime's decision to invade Iraq on the worst and possibly even like blatantly dishonest pretexts. So I think at any point you have to ask the question of, all right, we are a society, we have borders, we have armies, we have conflicts. When should we use this great and terrible power called war? Why should we use it? When should we use it? And how do we use it? What are the pretext and the grounds? And you do have to have a culture, a military culture, which can inform those decisions. And in 2004, we made, it was a watershed moment where America changed its pretext for war to preemptive defensive warfare. And it gives the president near unilateral ability to, to mobilize the military with very little checks and balances we are living in a time of never-ending Trojan Wars right now. It is the Trojan horse, if you will, of our military culture. And we are still yet grappling with that. And I think the lesson we learned from Achilles is like, doing it just to do it is not a good reason. That is not the reason to go to war. I'm not a pacifist. No historians are. Why? We love reading about battles. Let's be honest. I love reading about battles. Well, and also you understand that in some cases war is necessary to reshape the world in a, yeah, you know, I mean, it's awful to even say, but like there are some good things that have come from war. Inevitably, nations and peoples will conflict. And sometimes the only way to resolve that conflict is through a military conflict and is through the deployment of armies and the killing of humans. And it's a, it's a terrible, horrible thing but we live in a world now, right now, currently, 2021 America, still at war in the Middle East. We are now on the, what, fourth president? So Bush, Obama, Trump, now Biden. Fourth president managing a conflict that started in 2001 with no end in sight. And I think this movie asks us to deconstruct that and asks us to be like, 
are we sure we want to still go on these wars? Is it still worthwhile? Why are we fighting? And that is a question that is asked of Achilles. And that is a question that he is grappling with throughout every phase of this narrative. Why go fight for Agamemnon? Why go fight to defend the honor of Greece? Why go fight for glory? Why fight at all? And we as Americans need to really ask those questions. And I don't think as, as of yet, we've asked it enough. You know, I want to read a quote from the director, Wolfgang Peterson, on the parallels between Troy and the Iliad and contemporary American politics. He says, quote, You can't help thinking that this Homer was a real genius, that he exactly understood us humans who apparently need wars again and again. Also, that someone like Agamemnon reappears again and again. Still, Homer was never interested in black, white, good, bad. Such a concept doesn't exist in reality. Only in the mind of George W. Bush, end quote. Ooh, that's pretty scathing. It's a scorcher. And like, you know, I don't necessarily think the movie Troy is like the most biting criticism of, uh, of the war in the Middle East that exists out there in cinema or in any form of art. I think, you know, it's still a little bit distanced from that. But to know that the creators were directly engaging with that question, I think, is important. And that's that's why. I mean, we've been asking, why do we keep revisiting the Iliad? Why is the Iliad important? And this is one of the biggest reasons why, is because we need to understand why we fight. And the construction of heroes out of the conflict is something that we do need to interrogate. And it's something that, we have done as a civilization, as a Western civilization, since the archaic Greeks. We have picked our heroes out of these bloody conflicts and often learned the lesson of it's great to have the bloody conflict, but that's not what Homer is teaching us. Homer is not teaching us that it's great. Homer is, ends with Troy and the Greeks with 12 days of peace, the Iliad is more about, at least from a contemporary perspective, to me is better understood as a narrative around the longing for peace rather than the longing for conquest and battle. That's, yeah, that's extraordinary. And we see that conflict in Achilles in this movie, and that's why this movie is special to me, because it gets that conflict of Achilles incredibly well. And yes, there is no, there are no gods and he doesn't have magic armor and the Trojans are the victims and the Greeks are the bad guys and, and the accents are all over the map and all of these things that people have criticized Troy for. But what it gets right is Achilles and what it says, what Achilles says about a warrior culture and how we can reflect on that culture. And it is okay to be like Perseus and to deconstruct that culture and it's interesting that Achilles does teach her that, like, you know, wars are, are going to be fought. You can't actually be a pacifist in this world. And it's terrible but true. If you have a nation, you need an army. Full stop. <laughs> Otherwise, someone's going to take your nation from you. And that is a fundamental fact of human civilization, one that I wish weren't true. So if you are going to have a warrior class, what is that class going to look like? How is it going to be mobilized? What reasons are you going to use it? Is it going to be demagogued? Or is it going to be... And even the, the Trojans don't come away unscathed in their warlike ways in this movie. In particular, the way that Hector's advice on strategy is constantly being ignored because he's looking for the peaceful path. He doesn't want to plan a battle strategy around the divine auguries of birds. He says, we can't plan a strategy on bird signs. Direct quote. He says, how many arrows does the sun god give us? While the court is like, we're the Trojans, we are warriors, we cannot lose. Hector's like, hold on, no, this is a battle. You can lose battles. Are we sure we want to fight these battles? And because Hector's advice is constantly being ignored at court, it puts them into bad situations. He warns against attacking the Greeks on the beach because he says Achilles' men aren't there. There's definitely disunity. If we attack, it'll unify them. And what happens? They attack and it unifies them. And it costs Hector his life. And it costs the war to be lost 
because Hector's peaceful advice is constantly being ignored. Yeah. So even in the way it shows the Trojans, which is more sympathetic than the Greeks, it still shows this warrior ethos constantly being ignored. And yet, you know, the king of the Trojans is a really nice and good king, but he's willing to listen to a priest who's looking at bird flights over his top general who happens to be his son. And that is freaking stupid. Yeah, that's broken. And that, to me, feels a lot like Colin Powell in the UN being like, look at these shadows. That's definitely a weapon of mass destruction. We need to go to war with Iraq. Yeah. Let's look at the bird signs. We can't lose. There's going to be no negative consequences. We're going to go in and we're going to remove Saddam and the Iraqi people will be so grateful. It'll be a peaceful utopia. How'd that work out for you? Yeah, it didn't. Wow. (laughs) I just kind of went on a soapbox there. Yeah, but I think you've brought some amazing stuff to this conversation. I'm so grateful that you have all of this background in the, the historical implications of this literary tradition. It's so cool to think of it in context and to trace that all the way to a movie made in 2004. So well done. It's really, really special. And I encourage everyone to relook and reinvestigate Troy. Flaws and all, but there's something really awesome happening under the surface in this movie. And even though there are things that just don't work really well in the movie, it's no Gladiator, it's no Braveheart, but it's in that legacy of these big, sprawling, historical epics. And this one tells a very interesting take on Troy that in particular, us contemporary Americans need to learn from. Yep. Uh, So what can you do to create a more peaceful world today? Uh, One of the things you can do is if you can get vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you're already vaccinated or you want to surrender your spot for an elderly friend or loved one who has trouble signing up for it online, sign some people up for vaccinations, do what you can to help you know, end this virus and get us back together so we can all hug again. Uh, Support Asian American and Pacific Islander businesses and reach out to your friends who are hurting right now in the face of so much violence against Asian Americans. Uh, You know, spread the love, spread the love a little bit more. And if you know a veteran out there, shake their hand. Yeah. Do something nice for them. Well, don't shake their hand yet, but virtually shake their hand. Support, Support the veterans because they're the ones... As Achilles says, the soldiers are the ones that win the battles. And as Odysseus says, war is young men dying and old men talking. Whew. And until next time. Be kind. Be kind.